I'll read a little bit longer text this morning. I'll read the entire first chapter to set the stage. So sit back and think about this. If you want to open your pew Bibles, Daniel chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenazaz, Ashpenaz, excuse me, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he, if he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they, that they, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Unlike many Western nations, uh, the United States has not yet had a woman in the office of president, in the highest executive office in the land. No woman has yet wielded the power of the presidency. But not all historians agree with that statement I just made. 
And uh, some argue that a woman did, for a period of time, exercise the executive privileges of the office of the president, and that was a woman named Edith Wilson, the wife of President Woodrow Wilson. You see, during Woodrow Wilson's term in office in October 1919, he suffered a stroke, a debilitating stroke, and Edith, his wife, served as his gatekeeper. She controlled what the president saw, what he signed, and what he did. And historians argue about the extent to which she really exercised the power of the presidency during that time. But regardless of any view about that, about how much power she had, about historians' debates, there was clearly a time when Edith Wilson served as a sort of power behind the throne. That phrase, power behind the throne, is one that we use to describe a situation where you have sort of a figurehead leader, but there's someone else behind the scenes, someone else pulling the strings, a puppet master of sorts who's really exercising the true power. And this has happened throughout history, whether it happened with Edith Wilson or Otto von Bismarck or Catherine de' Medici, oftentimes there is someone wielding power behind the throne. And I think something similar happens here in the book of Daniel, that the book of Daniel is like one of those situations. Let me give you a little bit of background here, a little quick historical setting of where we are as we open chapter one of the book of Daniel. Where we are is this, Judah has been conquered by the Babylonian empire, the Babylonians have come in, they've raised the city, they've raised the temple, and they not only raised it, but they raided the temple. They brought back the temple vessels, those treasures, if you will, the temple of the people of Judah, they brought them back to Babylon. And they also brought back people to Babylon. They exiled many of the citizens, and particularly those who were most gifted, included among them was a guy named Daniel. He was exiled to Babylon to serve a foreign empire and a foreign king. And so ostensibly, to everyone's public appearance, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar had won. It looked like he was on the throne. But while Judah and Judah's God seemed to be defeated and Nebuchadnezzar seemingly was in charge, I believe Daniel 1 reveals a very different story. It reveals a power behind that throne, and that power was the living God of the Bible. This morning, I want you to see the true king. I want you to see how Daniel 1 reveals that God is in charge, even when it seems like he's not. That's a good thing to learn right now. The key idea, the takeaway, is that God is in charge even when it seems like he's not. And the way that is revealed in this first chapter is through a very careful reading. You have to kind of read carefully to see this by paying attention to who it is that is acting here. Who does the actions? I think the way we see that God is in charge here is by looking at, taking note of, what God gave. What God gave. And that's the title of my sermon this morning, What God Gave. And what we see in this chapter is God gave three things. I got you that for you, Gary. My three things. Okay, so God gave three things. 
I want to look at those three things that God gave, and then I want to think about what we learn from those things and from this text for our lives today. So the three things, and then we'll make some applications. The three things that God gave, the first thing that God gave was this, the vessels of the temple of God. If you look at verse 1, it's right there. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, that is the power of Nebuchadnezzar, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods, that is Nebuchadnezzar's gods. So here we open this book of Daniel, the very first verse, and it opens with a headline of humiliation. There's nothing more humiliating than what is expressed in this opening verse. We are told here that Jerusalem has been besieged, the king of Judah has been captured, and worst of all, the vessels of the holy temple of the God of Israel have been taken from that temple transported to Babylon and put in the, into the treasury of the gods of Babylon. That is a trifecta of humiliation. When a foreign empire comes into your land, destroys everything, and takes your god's stuff and brings it to their god's house, that means that you lost. That is utter defeat. That is humiliation. And the book starts out on that note, a headline of humiliation. And remember, people, we're reading here the history of the Hebrews. This is not a neutral party. This is not the history of the Babylonians. This is the history of the Hebrews. And the Hebrews tell you that they have been humiliated. That is so different than our own culture, right? Our culture is the culture of spin. I watched the, the president's uh, news conference this week, right? And, you know, the, his, his ratings are not that great. They're, they're pretty low, lowest maybe in history, depending on what poll you read. But in that moment when things are bad, things are bad, right? We got inflation, we got a pandemic. Uh, you know, you, you heard the, the president say things like, well, I don't, I don't believe the polls. I've done better than any president in history, right? We, we live in a culture of spin. We try to spin bad situations, make them sound better. All politicians do it. I'm not being partisan in that. Who's ever in office, that's what politicians do. They spin things. There's absolutely no spin here. This is as bad as it gets, and the Hebrews admit it right from the beginning. Things are awful. But then if you read a little more carefully, if you read a little bit more carefully, you see a very different picture emerge. Look at again at verse 2. The Lord let, did you catch that? The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, that is, into Nebuchadnezzar's power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. Did you catch the subject and the verb there? Did you catch who's doing the acting, who's doing the giving? The Lord let this happen. Or as the ESV has it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. Do you see who's really in charge? Do you see who's really on the throne? Yes, King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came in. Yes, they trembled, but they did not take anything. 
God gave. God gave the temple vessels to King Nebuchadnezzar. God gave this victory to the Babylonians in judgment on his own people. God is the true power behind the throne. And you see that in the first thing that God gave, that he gave the vessels of the temple into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. The second thing that God gave was favor to Daniel. Favor to Daniel. We see this in verse 9 of the text. This is what it says. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. Let me explain what's going on here in this scene. So Daniel is kind of part of the brain drain here, right? So Babylon takes first the best and the brightest out of Judah. Daniel is among them, along with his three friends. They're taken to Babylon to be enculturated, to be assimilated, to be trained to serve in the courts of Babylon. And so they come there, they learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and this is something they don't protest against. They, they go to three years of school, like good, good lawyers do, and they learn this so they can serve in the king's court. And part of this kind of assimilation process, part of winning these people's allegiance so that they give their hearts to Babylon, is that they are afforded certain privileges. And one of those privileges was they got to eat from the king's table. That's a pretty good deal, right? They got room service. They got the good food, rich food, rich wine, rich meats, and that was part of the benefit to them. But Daniel didn't want to do that. Daniel and his friends, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to so give themselves over to Babylon. They wanted to reserve something that reminded them that it is God who provides for them, not Babylon. And so they wanted to refrain from eating from the king's table. They wanted to draw a line in their life saying, we'll do all these things. We'll go to school. We'll learn all these things, but we won't eat from the king's table. The problem is, how is he going to do that? How is Daniel and his friends, how will they be able to keep this line of demarcation, this line of faith allegiance to their God? Well, the way they did that was that God gave Daniel favor with the palace master. He gave Daniel and his friends favor with those who were overseeing him. And Daniel goes to the palace master. He tries to get this deal, right, where he won't have to eat that. But the palace master is all worried about that. He might lose his head. What if you guys are skinny and the king notices that I didn't take good care of you? I'll lose my head. And so Daniel then, you know, he doesn't give up. He goes then to the guard who immediately oversees him, and he says to the guard, listen, let's run a little test. You see how Daniel kind of changes his up. He's a very wise guy. So he says, let's give it 10 days. You know, let's observe this. Let us try this experiment. You know, and if we're worse off than everybody else, then you can stop it. But if it works, it works. And of course, it works. It works. Daniel is better off, and he does fine eating on this, and it all works out. But the reason it worked out, it's because of what God gave. Right? Verse 9, God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. We can assume that that was the entire court, those under the palace master's authority. God gave. Again, the ESV is better here. It says, now, now God, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion. So here is Daniel in this situation, under captivity, under control, 
And God gives him favor with those who are overseeing him so that he can remain faithful to God. Again, God is the power behind the throne. Here in a very special and personal way with Daniel, allowing him the grace to live faithfully even while in captivity. The second thing God gave here was favor to Daniel to live faithfully in Babylon. And the third thing that God gave, we've seen him give the temple vessels to Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen him give this personal favor to Daniel. The third thing that God gave was knowledge and skill to Daniel and his friends. Knowledge and skill. Verse 17 of the text. To these four young men, that is Daniel and his three friends, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. This one is obvious, right? What God gave here is very clear. I don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but you can see that pattern of the subject and the verb who's doing the acting here again. God gave knowledge and skill And we know from the text in verse 20 that Daniel and his friends, they excelled in the school of Babylon. It says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. That is, Daniel and his friends were ten times better than anybody else in the king's court. God gave to his people this knowledge and skill. And again, this reveals his sovereignty, his power behind the throne. It seems like God is defeated. It seems like his people have been brought low, humiliated. But what happens here to the things that God gave? They rise to the top. They're 10x better than anybody else. They're in this position of power and authority. They rise to the top. How do they do that? They do it through what God gave. He gave knowledge and skill to Daniel and his friends. And by doing so, he reveals himself as the true power behind the throne. I'd go even farther than that. He reveals himself as the one who is truly on the throne. God is king. King over all, king over the macro events of Babylon, king over the micro events of Daniel's life, king over knowledge and wisdom and skill. All of it is based on what God gave. So that's what we see in the first chapter of Daniel. God is doing the verbs. God is giving. He gave the vessels of the temple. He gave favor to Daniel. He gave knowledge and skill to Daniel and his friends. It reveals in Daniel 1 that God is in charge even when it did not seem that way. Even when it seemed like all hope had been lost. That's what Daniel 1 teaches. That's what it reveals. Now let's think about what it means for us. What lessons can we draw from this text for ourselves living in this time as 21st century Christians? What do we learn? Let me give you three points of application. We learn three things. The first is this. We learn about the importance of drawing a line, of drawing a line for ourselves. The importance of drawing a line for ourselves. Daniel was in a position where he was living in a foreign empire, a foreign culture. He was 
being called to assimilate to things that he didn't necessarily always agree with. And he decided it was important for him to draw a line in his life. And where he drew that was with regard to the food from the king's table. He chose only to eat vegetables and to drink water. Now, in the church's uh, way of looking at this, like we always do, we, we do a lot of crazy stuff with this. I was reading Wendy uh, Witter's commentary on this, and she noted that in 2012, Saddleback Church did this whole thing, this Daniel plan, where everyone in the congregation was encouraged to eat, you know, to eat the diet of Daniel. This is how we're, you know, we're going to follow this. As if the point is what Daniel ate, you know, the actual ingredients of what he ate. Some of you, if you go to the store, you'll see a loaf of bread, uh, Ezekiel 4-9 bread. You ever see that at the store? They got it there, you know. And so the conceit of this bread is that it offers up, it's, it's, it's baked, it's made according to the biblical recipe, right? The ingredients found in Ezekiel 4-9, this is what it says in Ezekiel 4-9, you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them into one vessel and make bread for yourself. And if you look on the bread, you'll see those ingredients. What it doesn't include is how you're told to bake it in the Bible, which in verse 12 says, you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. <laughs> they left that part out. They didn't do that part. <laughs> At least I hope they don't do that part. <laughs> Somehow I think that would be against uh, you know, the rules. But my point is this. It's not about the diet. It's not about the ingredients. It's not that Daniel vegetarianism is you know, whatever you want to say, right? It's not about a physical diet, but by the way, that is important. Don't let me think, it's good, as Kyle mentioned, eat your vegetables, it's very good, be healthy, diets are important, I'm not trying to say that they're not, and nutrition's important, but it's not the spiritual point here. The spiritual point is not following what Daniel ate, the spiritual point is that we need a line of demarcation in our lives as Christians, when we are living in a culture that has, is hostile to our worldview. And that's where we are. It's where Christians have always been. In reality, we're not all that different than Daniel in 21st century America. We live in a culture that desires us to learn its literature and language, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it also is a culture that wants us to fully give our hearts to it, to view what it views as valuable, to be indebted to it, to give our allegiance to it, and that is a place where we need to learn to draw a line. Because if we don't learn that, then the culture will own us. We'll be serving the culture. Wendell Berry, in a poem, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, great poem, love Wendell Berry. He writes this, he, I think he gets at what this is, this idea of giving yourself over in allegiance. He writes, love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be, a punched, will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. 
work for nothing, take all you have and be poor, love someone who doesn't deserve it, denounce the government and embrace the flag, hope to live in that free republic for which it stands, give your approval to all you cannot understand, praise ignorance for what the man has not encountered, he has not destroyed, ask the questions that have no answers. Yeah. We, when, when you're living in Babylon, you need to learn to draw a line, or you might as well have your mind punched like a card and put into a drawer. That's what Daniel did. He drew a line in his life, a line of demarcation, a line where this far and no farther. And I want you to notice what that was, I, what kind of line that was. I mentioned in my point, the way I labeled this point was, we learned the importance of drawing a line for ourselves. Daniel did not go on Facebook and talk about his Christian rights being offended by the culture, right? Daniel didn't go and, you know, whine about religious rights. He, he didn't go and fight the culture wars, if you will. He did something very private. He took a private stand in his own heart and mind. His line that was drawn was one that was internal. One for him. He drew a line for himself. Too often, Christians go out and they try to draw lines for other people. We tell other people how to live their lives. We draw lines for everyone else. Daniel drew a line for himself. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He said, the New Testament is not interested as such in morality of the world. You can expect nothing from the world but sin. And that in its fallen condition, it is incapable of anything else. Right? Why draw lines? You're the one who's been called to be holy and blameless in the sight of God. Draw lines for yourself. Don't worry about them. Worry about you. Where you are, where your allegiance is, where your heart is, where that line needs to be in your life. That's what Daniel reminds us of. And I don't know where it is for you, but I know. If you are a Christian trying to live integrity in this world, there will come a time. It might be a job offer. It might be a choice to embrace values. It might be regarding who you will marry and how you will do that. But somewhere along your life, you'll be confronted with God's way and the world's way, and you'll be called to draw a line, not for someone else, but for yourself. And the way you live in liberty to Christ is to learn how to draw those lines. Daniel did it. In a small way, he reminded himself, he drew a line that my heart is to the Lord. My allegiance is to God. And this is the way I'm going to remember that. What is it for you? Where is the line that you need to be drawing right now in your life? Or that I need to be drawing in mine? Daniel teaches us this. The importance of drawing a line for ourselves. Inside of ourselves. Be loyal and faithful to God. The second thing we learn from Daniel chapter 1 is that God uses his people to bless others, even his enemies. God uses his people to bless others, even his enemies. You see, Daniel 1 is often taken as you know, this great text 
of how it shows us versus them. You know, the Christians were the Daniel and the culture, that's the Babylonians. And to a certain extent, I've said that in my first point, but don't mistake what I said, okay? Don't mishear me this morning. There is indeed an antithesis. There is a stark demarcation between the world and between God's people. There's no doubt about that in the scriptures. But that is an intellectual, that is a spiritual antithesis. It is not about real world animosity. It is not about us versus them. The story of Daniel tells a very different story. Babylon is the worst of the worst in the Bible, right? They are the epitome of what is wrong with the world. But what does God do? He sends his person, Daniel, his representative, into Babylon to do what? To bless Babylon. Daniel will bless Babylon. You will see it unfold. He will be a blessing to Babylon. Just as Joseph was a blessing to Egypt, God gave the gift of Daniel. To the very empire that tore down his temple and destroyed his cities. Why? Because God isn't like us. He loves even his enemies. And one can't help, help but hear echoes of Jesus. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves his enemies. And he even uses Christians, his people, to bless them. You ever thought about that? It's right there in the call of Abraham, right? Part of Abraham was to be a blessing. Part of Israel was to be a blessing, a light unto the Gentiles. Part of our role in this world is not to be against it, but to bless it. To be a blessing. We are called as Christians to be the air freshener of the world, the Febreze. Right? It's right in the Bible. Let me, I can show it to you. Listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance, the fragrance that comes from knowing him, from knowing Christ. You ever thought about yourself, your role in this world is that? That your calling in this world is to spread the fragrance that comes from knowing Him. Spread the fragrance. Wendy Witter, in her commentary, writes this, Such a metaphor challenges us to consider how we smell to the world around us. That's a good idea. You know what a pit check is, right? It's good advice for life. Christians, we need to do a spiritual pit check, right? We need, what are we doing? Are, are we stinking up the joint? Are we filling it with the beauty and aroma that comes from knowing Christ? Are we the fragrance of Christ? 
And sometimes we have to acknowledge we do stink, right? We have done that. And I think if you want to take the application, the application is this. How do you smell? Are you spreading that fragrance of Christ in this world? And one of the ways we do that is by being a blessing. Not by fighting a war. But by being a blessing, by being the fragrance of Christ in the world, that's what Daniel will do. He will remain faithful. He will have his sole allegiance to his God. He will resist the tyranny of an empire that is against his God. But he will also make that place better than it was before he got there. I was listening to a lecture, part of the Kelvin's January series yesterday, N.T. Wright was giving a lecture and talking about this. And he's hit this point millions and millions of times of trying to get Christians to change their mind. That we're going like that heaven is some other place. This is where God will build his kingdom. The city will come to the earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Not new in the sense of a different place. It will be this place. This is part of the building of the kingdom of God. This is my father's world. And if that is so, we should be filling it with the fragrance of Jesus Christ. Not stinking up the joint. And that's what God did with Daniel. He used him even in the place of the most hideous enemy that Israel could possibly think of. Daniel made that place a better place as Joseph did in Egypt. Application number two, God uses his people to bless others, even his enemies. And then third and finally this morning, we learn from this text about how much God gave. About how much God gave. The most fundamental basic error of the interpretation of the book of Daniel is to make the book of Daniel about Daniel. This is not about Daniel. This is not how you are to be a Daniel. This is not a book about Daniel. Daniel is not the top character in the story. He's not the star of the book. He's not the star of the book, the main character, if you will. The protagonist is God. God, the book is about God, what God does, what God gave. God is the subject. God is doing the verbs. And what the book reveals to us this morning, even here in chapter 1, that God is in charge, even when it doesn't seem that way. He is the power behind all earthly powers, the power behind these earthly thrones, and the one who is on the throne. And I want you to remember that. And particularly during challenging times. And many of you are going through challenging times. Remember to look for what God is giving you in those times. Look for what God gave. That's how you find God's sovereignty in this chapter. Through what he gave. What is God giving you? Daniel was in a terrible spot. He was in exile, torn from his home. But he saw God's hand in what God gave him in this time. He knew that God was with him. And when you are in your challenge, whatever that may be, look for what God is giving you. I think about it right now, right? Here we are. In a form of exile itself, right? God gave us COVID. I'm a Calvinist, right? I know about primary and secondary causes. I know about science and all those kind of things. But you peel the onion back far enough, you get me to announce God is sovereign over all things. He brought this just as much as he gave the temple vessels to Nebuchadnezzar. 
And it's a hard challenge, right? And it's every time you go through one of these waves, it becomes even harder. We had our council meeting on, on Thursday night, you know, and we're talking about this. And there are as many opinions on council as there is in this congregation, as there is in this country. We're all wrestling with this. And, I, you know, it kind of came, we were, we were talking, and it kind of came to me. And I just said, I'm exhausted. And I said, my wife's exhausted. And everybody in this place is exhausted. And everybody at home is exhausted, right? We're exhausted about this. And sometimes, and I was kind of like a baby about it, I threw up my hands. Sometimes you just get so tired about it. Because all you can think about is what has been taken away. You see it in children in school. You see it in social relationships. I see it every day in my job. My wife sees it at school. You all see it too. The things that have been taken away. And you can sit there and you can focus on everything that's taken away. And you will become bitter. And you will be giving allegiance to other things. The key is to look at what God is giving you now. What is God giving us? To look for that in times of crisis. What is God giving? Is he giving us compassion? Is he giving us perseverance? Is he testing our faith? Is he calling us to love our neighbor? Is he calling us to wrestle with things and authorities and power? What is it that God is giving you right now? If you can focus on that, if you can focus on what God gave, you will find hope in exile. And if I could telescope it forward in redemption there was another time in Israel's history when they were in bondage, when there was a foreign power that became the new Babylon. And all hope once again seemed lost. And in the midst of that, what did God do? For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life this is how we connect to the story of daniel because every christian is like daniel we are strangers in a strange land we are people living in exile and our hope our deliverance our salvation is not found in destroying those who oppose us but rather is found in what god gave gave us Christ. He gave us Christ. Let's pray.